Shabbat Shalom. We are on the eve of Yom Yerushalayim that starts uh, tonight, it is tomorrow. Yom Yerushalayim is a modern festival that has been convened or called by the Israeli government because of the historic event of the reunification of Jerusalem in 1967. And many of us here weren't alive then. I don't remember it. I was only seven years old, as some, some other people might remember it a little bit better. But that was a day that we ought well to remember, because Israel was on the verge of being extinguished with Arab hostile armies on every border, something that the media forgets to remember these days and bring to mind. Israel was about to be destroyed. People were expecting Israel to at least suffer uh, devastating losses. And instead of a tremendous destruction in that war in 1967, Israel, with her hand forced, made a preemptive strike and destroyed the Air Force of Egypt and within six days liberated not only uh, Jerusalem, but much of the, the Sinai Peninsula and other territories round about. It's left a lasting legacy that's politically difficult, but nevertheless, God wrought a great miracle on that day. And we today are able to rejoice in what God did in 1967 when he liberated Jerusalem and once again, where Jews had been forbidden to pray, we were able once again to pray at the Western Wall. Um, It's an exciting thing that relates to the promises of God. God's promises do not return to him void. And this is part of what the Apostle Shaul is leading up to in Romans chapter 11. He is going to end up talking about the promises of God and God's faithfulness. Before we continue, though, we ought well to remember that today is the 42nd day of the Omer, making four weeks of the Omer. This is... um, 42 days since the resurrection of Yeshua HaMashiach on the 40th day, as we know, he ascended to be with the Father. It's interesting that around the Christian world, people count the 40 days prior to the death of Messiah Yeshua. But the early believers counted 40 days after the resurrection of Messiah until his ascension to the Father and counting another 10 days until the blessing of the Ruach HaKodesh came upon the people of Israel in the festival of Shavuot in Jerusalem. So we say, Hayom Shanaim ve'arba'im yom shehem shisha ve'ot la'omer. This is the 42nd day of the counting of the Omer. 
Eight more days, it will actually be Shavuot. And unfortunately, I will be unable to be with you on Shavuot on uh, on next Shabbat as um, I will be at a conference. I'm a conference speaker at a conference in Seattle. Romans chapter 11 is where we are at today. The promises of God. And actually, we're going to call this chapter, or this talk regarding this chapter, Elijah, the olive tree, and the promises of God. Elijah, the olive tree, and the promises of God. You see, Rav Shaul, as I've been mentioning, as we've been going through the book of Romans, is very much making a case to a Keilah where there is friction between those who are Jews and those who are not Jews. And actually, there is the, the seed of what we now call replacement theology. It wasn't a fully developed thing, but in that day, people were already beginning to think God is done with Israel and God has passed the baton on to us, the Gentiles, now. Supersessionism was already beginning to take hold among the early believers in Rome. Sadly, it continued to take hold despite the powerful arguments of the Shaliach, the apostle Rav Shaul in the book of Romans. But he is arguing to put to rest this idea that God is done with Israel that there is no future for the Jewish people. He wants people to understand that God has a promise that he is going to bring to fulfillment. And it's for the blessing not only of Israel, but of all believers worldwide. Romans chapter 11 is the final chapter where Rav Shaul is making this argument He's made this argument from the beginning. And now in chapter 3, he is going to use three different arguments to seal his case. Now that's the mark of someone who's passionate and cares about what he is saying and what he is teaching. He is saying it three different times in three different ways so that the people in Rome might know that God has a future for Israel. And not just any future, not just a future that says, uh, well, God is going to allow Israel to continue. He's not going to be totally finished with Israel. But this is a future that he says is going to be glorious, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And God speaks through Rav Shaul as he makes this argument three times, as he says, this is the way it is. And then he says it again. And then he says, do you have it yet? Do you really understand? Till he finally brings his argument to a conclusion. And so Romans chapter 11 and verse 1, Rav Shaul begins with his argument from Eliyahu Hanavi. Elijah the prophet. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. 
And Rav Shaul is using that phrase that he's used numerous times in the letter to the Romans, me genoita, which is a powerful, strong statement, as strong as you can get in the Greek language and clearly equivalent to the Hebrew, chas veshalom, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite. There's no hint of replacement. There's no hint of the idea that now that he is a believer in Messiah Yeshua, he is no longer an Israelite, no longer a Jew. That's not at all what Rav Shaul is saying. And I meet people who say that in the body of Messiah, there is neither Jew nor Greek, as Rav Shaul himself said. But clearly, that's not what he's implying when he says, I am an Israelite. When he says there's no Jew nor Greek, he's saying there's no difference between Jews or Greeks in our relationship to God. But there is a difference between Israel and the nations, even in the body of Messiah. Rav Shaul is saying, I have my identity. And the same goes for those of us who are not Jewish. We have our identities. Our identities of whatever nationality we might come from are not erased when we become part of the body of Messiah. In fact, God glories and rejoices in our differences. And we look forward to the day when, as the prophet Isaiah has said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And when we shall all be standing before the throne of God from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, there we will be. Our God is a God who loves diversity. You only have to look at creation and the diversity within it to see the nature of our God. And so he says, I too am an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He knows who he is. He understands his identity in the body of Messiah and what God has called him to do and to be. God has not rejected his people whom he knew beforehand. Now, that's as strong an argument against supersessionism or replacement theology as you should really need in the entire Brit Hadashah, New Testament. That's clear. Here I am. I am still an Israelite. God has not rejected his people whom he knew beforehand. Unfortunately, in the Western world especially, um, we, we suffer from a plague of, of replacement theology that is overtaking many branches of the church. Much of the church in Europe has officially turned away from this theology, this kind of thinking, because they saw what it led them into. Not only were the Germans responsible for the Holocaust, the Shoah, but actually nations around them were willing participants or at least 
had significant populations among them who were willing participants and justified their participation in the Shoah in the destruction of the Jewish people on the basis of their faith. Fortunately, many churches in Europe have attempted, at least, to put that kind of thinking behind them. God has not rejected his people whom he knew beforehand. And so he brings up the story of Elijah. And I can't but help think that Rav Shaul is thinking maybe a little bit biographically, personally, at this point. He feels maybe a little bit like Elijah. After all, there was the day when he was younger, when he sat at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Around him were scores of other very religious Jewish people studying at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And they were just one of many, many schools in Jerusalem where people would study the Torah and sit at the feet of famous rabbis and scribes and scholars. And he knew what it was to be part of Israel. But now, as a follower of Messiah, when he saw Messiah on the road to Damascus, he realized he had to follow him. He realized who his Lord was. And all of a sudden, Rav Shaul is a very lonely person. He can't really sit at the feet of Gamliel anymore. He can't really participate, at least in the same way, in Jewish life, in, in the life of the religious community of Israel. Because now he cannot go into their presence without them knowing and without saying that he has seen the risen Lord and that he knows that Yeshua is the Messiah sent from God the Father. Rav Shaul maybe is a little bit like Eliyahu, who is alone. Do you not know what the scriptures say about Eliyahu, how he pleads with God against Israel? Romans 11, verse 3. This is what he pleads. Adonai, they have killed your prophets. They have destroyed your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. There were people seeking Rav Shaul's life. There were people who did not like him with a greater dislike than he had disliked the believers when he was persecuting them. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in the same way, at this present time, there has come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice. For if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Rav Shaul looks out at, at the, the Romans and he brings them this picture of Eliyahu Hanavi. And there is Eliyahu out in the wilderness. He has fled from everyone. He's finding out that angels can cook because he is fed finally by the angels. And in the wilderness, he is 
suffering and a great depression. He is really low. And actually, this is one of those signs that actually uh, believers can suffer great depression. We can end up feeling really low sometimes. But he is encouraged. There is a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, one of my totally incomplete projects that I dreamed of doing was a history of Messianic Judaism. No one's done it since 1936. No one has published a proper full history of Hebrew Christianity from the first century to now, although many people have taught courses on the topic. But uh, it's always been my dream to write this book that would trace the history of Jewish believers because it is clear that there has never been a time since Yeshua when there have not been believers in Yeshua in Western history, never mind Eastern history um, in Asia. There have always been some among Israel who have not turned away from Messiah, who have acknowledged his lordship. And this is what Rav Shaul is saying. There are always 7,000 From the time of the patriarchs, there have always been some who have followed God, who have sought his ways. God is faithful. It's a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God has been so gracious to us, not our works. It's God who has done this among us, that there should always have been some who believed that Yeshua is the Messiah. It is a great and wonderful thing that God has done. Rav Shaul points to it. And in Rome, where probably, like in our Keilah, there are a lot more people who are not Jews than those who are. Nevertheless, there are some. And God has kept some of us. And it's a sign of the faithfulness of God. God has not rejected his people. God cares for Israel. And so we go back to Yom Yerushalayim. And we remember looking back at at that day when Jerusalem was liberated. What an amazing event that was. But one of the things that happened very shortly afterwards and for the next two decades is that there was a massive move among the Jewish people where thousands and thousands of Jewish people around the world began to come to faith in Yeshua HaMashiach. And today, many of the older generation of leaders in the Messianic Jewish movement are those who were saved following the 1967 Six-Day War. It was spontaneous. No one could make it happen. In the United States, people attribute it to the Jesus People Movement, of which many were Jews, and say it was because of the cultural changes in in the United States. Well, actually, it was also here in Canada a few years later. It was also in the United Kingdom. It was also in Europe. Jewish people were turning 
to Yeshua just 20 years after the Shoah. It was an amazing movement of God. And it is interesting how this fulfillment of God's promise was also linked to maybe a first fruits of what God is doing among the Jewish people in our latter days, in that when Jerusalem was restored, and many said at that time, Jerusalem is no longer trodden down by the Gentiles, as the scriptures say. But when Jerusalem was restored, you saw Jewish people coming to Yeshua HaMashiach, and were living in the legacy of that even today. And so Rav Shaul points to the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are always some who by grace have been brought back to God. What then? Verse 7. What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but the elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes not to see and ears not to hear until this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bend their back continually. So Rav Rav Shaul is now, despite bringing up the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, bringing up for the first time in what will be repeated later in the chapter, the fact that God has hardened Israel. And God doesn't turn people uh, away from him easily. I think a lot of it is, as with Pharaoh, Pharaoh's mind was to be against God. Pharaoh's mindset was opposed to God. So God just kind of gave him a little help along the way and hardened his heart. But that's the way Pharaoh was going anyway. And Israel is kind of in the same same situation. Here we are, as a people, we had pretty much decided, no, we are not going to accept Yeshua Messiah as Messiah. And as a people, as a nation, Israel was turning her back on Yeshua. And God was saying, Let this be the case then, because God had a great plan. God did have a plan to bring blessing to the nations, even through the hardening of Israel's heart. Many people say, well, if the heart of the Jewish people is hardened, how could God have anything more to do with them? But that's not God's plan at all. And we see it in the next few verses as Rav Shaul brings out a little more truth following his story regarding Elijah. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Again, may gonoito. But by their false step, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their loss riches for the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? 
But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles, I spotlight my ministry. If somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Rav Shaul brings about the genius, the counterintuitive genius of God's plan. God has allowed Israel to be hardened. He has even participated in the hardening of Israel's attitudes towards Yeshua, the Messiah. But he has done it so that the nations might accept Messiah, so that they might then turn to Israel, and Israel might be jealous of the blessing that the nations have, and that this way Israel might be saved. God has not left the original goal, which is to bring all of Israel to himself, to have all of Israel make teshuvah and turn to him and to turn to Messiah Yeshua. It's a fascinating thing, this word jealousy. I talked a little bit about it last week in a different context. But here Rav Shaul is talking about the role of the nations in making Israel Jealous. Now, we tend to be jealous when something that is precious to us um, is taken by someone else. You talk about a jealous boyfriend or a, a jealous husband or a jealous wife. And it's someone who is fearful or maybe is experiencing someone else taking that person that is precious to them away from them. And they, you know, may be wrong or they may be right, but the feeling there is jealousy. You are taking my partner, my spouse. He or she is mine. And there is that feeling that sometimes leads people into crazy and and, uh, dangerous and illegal Um, abusive acts, but nevertheless is there, that is mine. That person is mine. What are you doing with them? Well, this is a little bit like what is happening with Israel and Messiah, Yeshua. You see, we have the Messiah of Israel. The nations are acknowledging Israel's Messiah. And Jewish people look upon the the nations and look at Christians and if they are able to close the loop and realize that it is their Messiah that the nations have fallen in love with, they're mystified. They're maybe a little bit jealous. When someone who's not Jewish says, I love The scriptures, I love the word of God. The entire Jewish Bible, including all those writings by Jewish believers in Yeshua in the Brit Chadashah. And I so love it, and it is such a blessing to me. These Jewish writings, when a person 
realizes or, or brings that to a Jewish person, I really love your Jewish scriptures. A Jewish person's probably thinking, I don't think I've read a verse in the scripture except maybe what was over the ark in the synagogue when I happened to attend a community meeting there one Wednesday night. Um, and, and most Jewish people are thinking, you know, you probably know it better than me. And sometimes Jewish people will say something like, you're almost more Jewish than I am because you're getting to know my scriptures. That's a good kind of jealousy that can lead a Jewish person to say, maybe I need to look a little bit more into the word of God. Maybe I need to look a little bit further into Messiah, Yeshua, and see if he's the Messiah, or at least see what these early Jews thought about him. That's a good kind of jealousy. That's the kind of jealousy that Rav Shaul is hoping that people will, will experience when they see those who are not Jews taking up something that really belongs to Israel, the scriptures and Messiah, as their own. And he's hoping that Israel will turn around and say, I want a little bit of that. That's mine. Give it back. And so Rav Shaul says, if the rejection, if the rejection of Israel leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And Rav Shaul looks forward to that day when Israel will experience Messiah, when Israel will really get to know God because there will be Messiah making a way for us into the presence of Hashem. And at that time, Israel will be a blessing to the entire world. Well, we move on from Eliyahu to the olive tree. Rav Shaul is once again going to make this argument to church in Rome. He says, if the first fruit is holy, so is the first batch of dough. Now, I don't know if anyone here made challah this week. But when you make challah, you take a little bit of the dough and set it apart, and that is holy. Um, it is part of the routine of making challah. That's actually what makes challah, the Shabbat bread, different from any other bread that you eat during the week. It's not because challah tends to be made with a little bit more sugar and a lot more egg and is uh, maybe basted with egg white to give it a different topping and either poppy seeds or sesame on top. Uh, that's not what makes challah special. It is that a piece of it has been taken and set aside. That bread is in a sense, part of an offering to the Lord. And if that challah, if that piece that's taken is holy to the Lord, so is the whole loaf. It makes the challah special. And Rav Shaul says the same principle applies with the first fruit. If the first fruit is holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And now he launches into the story of the olive tree, the analogy. And sometimes we get a little bit too detailed, 
and too, um, too absorbed in every aspect of what the olive tree is. But Rav Shaul's message is pretty clear. The olive tree is Israel. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were granted in among them and became a partaker of the root of the olive tree with its riches, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Notice then the kindness and severity of God. There is the olive tree. It is a symbol of fruitfulness, Um, We don't usually think of olive trees this way, but an olive tree in the Middle East is something that is is very fruitful, and its fruit is valued. Even today, you can see it playing out in the uh, political drama in the uh, disputed territories, where you have people planting olive trees and sometimes other people uprooting them because the olive tree is a symbol that you own that land. And an olive tree with its fruit is, is a result of the fruitfulness of the land and its fruit provides oil, its fruit provides food for the people. An olive tree is meant to be fruitful. But some of the branches are broken off. Why are they broken off? Because they are not fruitful. They are not bearing good fruit. The branches are broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker of the root of the olive tree with its richness. There you have the picture of those who are not Jews from all nations who are growing wild, who are being grafted in to the olive tree. And many people point out that you don't normally succeed in grafting a wild olive into a domesticated olive tree. I don't know if that's entirely true or not. But regardless, you have the wild olive tree that has not been cultivated. Israel's been cultivated through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Torah, through centuries of Torah learning and discipline by God. Israel is a trained olive tree. And its branches are being broken off so that others might be, might be grafted in. It's an amazing thing that God has done because of our unbelief. But Rav Shaul is very stern with the Romans. And very stern, I think, with the, with the modern Christian church. Because I think the default position of the church and of believers and Christians today is to say God chose us instead of the Jews. We were faithful, but those Jews, they crucified the Messiah. That's what people say. And it's tragic. That's boasting against the olive tree. That's exactly what Rav Shaul does not want to see. 
In fact, God cares for Israel passionately. And that's part of the story here. And we continue in verses 22 and following. Notice there, then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who fell, but God's kindness towards you if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of that by which by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Rav Shaul's shows that God is still faithful to Israel. He is still faithful and willing and able to graft those branches that were broken off, that actually, if it were not for the mighty power of God, would have withered and died, no longer being attached to the tree. Somehow they're still alive. Somehow Israel still lives. Am Yisrael Chai. God is able to graft those branches back into the tree. God has cared for Israel from ancient times, right until Rav Shaul's day, and even to today, keeping us alive against every possibility of our destruction. We should have been exterminated as a people many times, by historical probability. But nevertheless, God has preserved us. Sometimes people boast against the natural branches in a way that's very unseemly. See, God cares about the Jewish people, and he cares about Israel, and he does so on the basis of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers those people. And Deborah and I in London, one of the difficulties we had in London was finding a place where we could fellowship with other believers in Messiah that suited us. And one place that we attended for a number of months every single week as they were going through Genesis, the pastor found every single reason in the book many of them out of his own imagination, so from outside of the book as well, to criticize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet God remembers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God loves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to us as members of Israel, these are people that we love as our forefathers. And while we make no pretense that they were perfect, we look to them as examples to us of faithfulness and love to God and of God's love to them and to us. Boasting against the natural branches, but forgetting that we too are just as sinful. Rav Shaul encourages us that God will graft again those branches that were broken off, back into the olive tree. That is such a wonderful, encouraging thing. Then we come to the third part of Romans chapter 11. We've seen Eliyahu, 
We've seen the olive tree. And now Rav Shaul comes to the final argument, his closing argument, as it will, and it comes right down to God himself and the promises of the Almighty God. It's a mystery, he says. Now, in Rome, they had all kinds of mysteries. They had these temples where people would have these mysterious truths that only the the initiated could participate in. There was Gnosticism all over the Roman Empire, and, and people were let into the mysteries of Gnosticism step by step. They were supposedly more and more enlightened as uh, they got further and further into these religions. But this is a mystery, Rav Shaul says, that we should not be ignorant of. This is something that we should know. This is something that God had taught us in the scriptures and is now revealed. It's not something mysterious. It's not something hidden. It is something we now know. He does not want us to be ignorant of this mystery, lest we be wise in our own eyes that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 25. God has shown us in his scripture that God has allowed Israel to remain in unbelief until the fullness of the nations shall come in. That is an exciting thing. There's two promises there. One is the promise that their fullness of the nations are going to come into covenant relationship with God through Yeshua, the Messiah. That is an exciting promise. And that is something that we should all hang on to and look forward to the day when all nations shall bow. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Yeshua is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the other promise that is implicit in this verse is that God is going to bring a restoration to Israel. And that's what Rav Shaul expands on in the next verse. In this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer shall come out of Zion. He shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now always when Rav Shaul uses a verse, he uses it with purpose. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 27, you can see where Rav Shaul gets this verse. And it's actually in a context that reminds us of the olive tree. The olive tree and its fruitfulness. Isaiah 27 and verse 6, In days to come, Yaakov will take root, Israel will blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Did he strike Israel as he struck those who struck them? Or were they slain as their slayers were slain? You contended with her by banishing her, with, by driving her away. With his fierce wind, he expelled them on the day of the east wind. Just as Rav Shaul said, they were hardened. We were banished, as it were. But in verse 9, so by this will Jacob's sin be atoned. 
and this the full price to remove his sin, when he makes all the altar stones like shattered chalk stones, so that the Asherah poles and incense rise no more. By this will Jacob's sins be atoned. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, Rav Shaul says. It is a wonderful promise of Hashem that is reiterated again and again and again, the Tanakh, that God will be faithful to Israel and he will bring them back. Verse 8, Rav Shaul now, verse 28, he now looks at their situation. Concerning the good news, they're hostile for your sake. Yes, the Jewish people in Rome are your enemies. But concerning the chosenness, they are loved on account of the fathers for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. And then, coming to his grand conclusion, finally concluding it, he points to the fact that he's been pointing to since Romans chapter 1, that both Jews and Gentiles have fallen into sin. Both have been unfaithful to God. Both have failed to serve him. And so he says, For just as you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, in like manner these also have not now been disobedient, with the result that, because of the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. And finally, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. That's last, the last line of Rav Shaul's argument that began in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. His argument that God is not finished with Israel. God has shut all of us, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. All of us have been disobedient. All of us have fallen short. But God has done this so that he might show mercy to the nations, so that he might show mercy to Israel. That is God's plan. And so we have the final response of Rav Shaul, which if you are familiar with Jewish prayer and the Siddur, is very, very Siddur-like, very much like the words of the Siddur. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how incomprehensible his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. What an amazing promise we have. And what an amazing instruction from the Lord we have through Rav Shaul. A promise that God will redeem us as, as a nation, as a world. That there is coming a day when the nations will pay tribute to him. And what a, what a great blessing to know that it is God who is behind all of this drawing us to him. Let's conclude with a brief word of prayer. Avinu Shavashamayim, we thank you that 
you have poured out your grace upon Israel, and that even the present rejection and hardening among Israel against Messiah Yeshua is in your will, so that Israel might eventually be saved. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your promise. And we thank you that you are bringing all nations and Israel ultimately before your throne so that we might all bring glory to you. Father, we pray that we might not be those who boast one against another, Jew versus Gentile or Gentile versus Jew, but that we might all have gratitude in our heart for the blessing of being grafted into the olive tree. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.